Good morning. Um, we are in the book of Mark, where we've been for a while. Uh, Mark 14 is where we'll be this morning. So you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll be there in just a minute. Uh, I'm excited as we get closer to Easter, just because I love Easter, but also we take this, this time as a church, we take this time uh, as the church universal to most intentionally remember the sacrifice of Christ, to most intentionally focus on what he accomplished on the cross. And so we're doing that in a way that uh, we've not done before because we've already been in the book of Mark. We're taking time before Easter Sunday gets here to really look closely at this last life of, or the last week of the life of Christ. And, uh, and so last week we talked about the Lord's Supper this time together he had with his disciples leading up to his crucifixion, the, the, truly the last supper he would eat before his crucifixion. And today we're looking at the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So these stories that are familiar to us, uh, if we take a closer look, I think you may find with me, there's some depth here. Like I've never preached this passage, and so I'm excited about it. But as I'm studying it, there's some significant things here that I just never knew before. And so hopefully as we look at who Christ is, as we've done in the book of Mark so far, we can see what he's done, and we can see what that means for us, who he's made us, and then everything we do flows out of that new being. So as Christians, this new being, as a Christian, this follower of Christ, we, we have this claim to surrender everything, and then we have this experience of actually surrendering everything. So we say, I'm a Christian, I follow Christ, and I die daily, and it's a good idea. But then we experience life in a way that we're being sanctified, we're being made holy. So this claim to follow Christ is being realized as we're being sanctified and made more like Him. The, the things that once were all about us are no longer all about us. This new creation that we are, we're all about Christ. And this may sound horribly pessimistic. I'm not a pessimist. Some people tell me I am sometimes. I like to think I'm very optimistic. But every once in a while, I want to be real. Let's just be honest. May not may not be so as good as it sounds. It may not turn out as well as you think it's going to turn out. So, yes, that's pessimism, whatever. So it may sound pessimistic, but when I first hear uh, a new believer proclaim with enthusiasm, I'm going to follow Jesus with all that I am. I'm going all out. I'm going to the end of the earth. I'll go until my feet bleed, you know. The exciting, exciting feeling new believers have. When I first hear that, or even when I first hear someone say they're a Christian, I, the feeling I have is ambivalence. It's, it's this complex mixture of, yes, I'm excited. I want to be excited. I want to rejoice at your fervor. But I also have this, and the older I get, the more this grows in me, I have this feeling of, there's no way you fully realize what you're saying. There's so much to experience. It's almost like with newlyweds. There's so many things to rejoice in. It's, it's a joyful thing. But you know there's going to be some suffering. There's going to be some difficulty. In that, and that's this, the selfishness being ripped from us by the experience of life. So as we follow Christ, the world turns against us. As we follow Christ, our flesh hates it. As we follow Christ, Satan hates it. And so there's this overwhelming feeling that's certainly mixed with rejoicing. It's truly better to know Christ than not to know Him. But there's this weight of truly surrendering everything to Christ that for some is going to be more difficult than for others. There's more to lay down. There's more to process. There's more to deal with. So the reason for this ambivalence is 
Because I think too often, when we say we follow Christ, we say it from self-confidence. I follow Christ. It's, it's my decision. It's all about what I want. I can do it. We, we grip it, we bare knuckle it, we're going, grit our teeth, we're digging in, we're following Christ with all that we have. And in that mindset, it's, it's not going to happen. Because you don't have what it takes to truly follow Christ. When we look closely at who Jesus is in Scripture, following Him is not by our strength and energy. It's by His. He's done the work to lovingly draw us to Himself. And, and that's, that is what spiritual maturity is, is growing to understand it's not me that's following Christ. But it's by His grace that I follow and He draws me in. So if we start with this, I can do this, we're certainly going to fail. But when we start with He's done everything, He enables me to follow, then we can confidently follow, not in our own confidence, but confident in Christ. And the reason I point all this out is because I think it's clear in this passage today, there's, there's a reason to rejoice in the freedom we have in the Gospel, but there's also this weight of being called to do something we don't have the means to do. Our flesh is weak. We follow Jesus. It's required of us to surrender everything if we follow Jesus. But we can't. We don't know how. So we depend on Him. And this sanctifying work of our self-centeredness being purged from us hurts. Sanctification hurts, but it's for our good. And it should be the most agonizingly difficult thing we experience. But it's for our good. And we see a glimpse of that when we look in Gethsemane. So let's go. So Mark 14 starting in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began, a, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, or not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping, asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that in our time together this morning, you would reveal in us the sin that is secret, the sin that hides. Reveal in us the things that hold us back, that weigh us down, that keep us from placing our faith in Christ. And let us be drawn to repentance by your kindness and your grace. I pray that you would, you would lead us and teach us by your word that we would know it's more than just words, but it's the word of the creator 
given to us for our good and for your glory. So be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so like I said, I've never preached this passage and, and I, I see we read it as we, a part of this Easter approaching time that we think about it. Yes, he prayed in the garden. He was agonized. The disciples fell asleep. We're familiar with it in a sense, or at least I am. But when we take a closer look, I think we can see the, the willing surrender of Christ's body that happens on the cross is connected to this this willingly surrendering His will to the will of the Father in the garden. That this, this crucial surrender, if it doesn't take place, then He cannot go to the cross with joy. It, it happens here in this valley, hidden in a garden, where Jesus is very much alone. Not just on this cross, on the hillside where the world sees. This internal suffering He experiences is far greater than any suffering we could ever experience. And it's far greater than any physical suffering he experienced on the cross. This internal suffering we see here in the garden is, is on our behalf. Just as much as the cross is on our behalf. And he's being betrayed and denied and abandoned by those he's brought close. And for those of us who drink the cup of salvation and all the saints throughout history and all that are to come... Christ is drinking the cup of wrath. So let's look closely at verse 32. They they went into the place called Gethsemane. Now, this is known as um, uh, the wine or the oil press. Gethsemane means oil press. Uh, It's east of the Brook Kidron, if that means anything to you. And it's at the base of the Mount of Olives. So this is a valley. And the disciples likely are camped out here. Like This is probably where they stay when they're in town. So much so that he knows Judas knows where to find him. So Judas leaves while they're in the upper room, and he knows exactly where to bring the Roman soldiers or to bring the soldiers to arrest Jesus because they've been there. He knows where they are. And it's kind of poetic that it's an oil press because Jesus is about to be crushed. And the disciples have spent time here before, and so they're... They're thinking they're just coming back to camp out like they have before. Only Jesus is very clearly saying some things differently than he has before. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. In Luke 22, verse 40, he gives a little more to this. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now Mark goes on in the second round, he'll say that. But it's important that Jesus didn't just say it to the three. He said it to all the disciples. Sit here and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. He's He's taking time to teach them to stand guard against temptation. And the way you're going to be guarded against temptation is prayer. It takes prayer, and not just any prayer, but dependence and consistent prayer for them to to be in obedience. And and they're going to learn the hard way that if you don't pray, you're not consistent. If you don't pray, you misplace your faith. If you don't pray, you fall into unbelief. And Jesus knows that, but still he gives them this, this warning. Pray unless you, or, or you'll fall into temptation. Verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to, to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. 
So he tells his disciples to watch. He wants them to watch. Now it could be he's asking them to stand guard because Judas is coming. Be on the lookout. Let me know when, they're, when they get here. But I think it's more likely he's telling them to spiritually be aware. Have spiritual alertness here. He wants them to see they're weak. And they're going to need to be dependent on him because they can't handle what's about to come. And if we fast forward in the story, we know because they failed to pray, because they misplaced their faith, and they fell into temptation. And when, when tragedy struck, they fled. And Jesus knew all of this was coming, so he's warning them. Pray, be prepared. You're, you're weak. I know you're weak. You're insufficient, but I'm sufficient. Pray, depend on me. Greatly distressed. He's taking time to teach them the need to pray. It says he's troubled. He's very sorrowful, even to death. The phrasing here in Greek, this very distressed, troubled, anguish, terror, horror, dismay. So there is no stronger possible expression of pain in Greek. This is is the weight Jesus is feeling right now. We're witnessing Jesus as fully God, fully man, at his most vulnerable human point in the garden. One commentator, James Edwards, he wrote, Nothing in all of the Bible compares to Jesus' agony, agony, agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Neither the lament of the Psalms nor the broken heart of Abraham as he prepares to sacrifice his son Isaac, nor David's grief at the death of his son Absalom. So if you're familiar with these things in Scripture, you know how heavy those moments were. And you can imagine this. Fathers, you can imagine losing a son or being commanded to, to kill your son, to sacrifice your son. The weight of agony of knowing the need for obedience doesn't compare to the weight of agony Christ is feeling in this garden. The sorrow is so extreme, his physical body can't handle it. He's at the point of death. And this type of sorrow only Christ could experience because He's beyond us in so many ways. Only Christ could experience this and not be crushed to death. He can be tempted in this moment and not give in. Now for us, we could just read this and we say, okay, yeah, Jesus is really sad. And then we move on. But let's, let's try to understand this because for me, I have questions almost about everything, but I have questions about this. How is this possible? This agony that's crushing Him. So much so that he falls to the ground. This massive burden he's carrying forces him to the ground and, and crying out to God to take it away from him. He's overwhelmed with sorrow and grief and despair unto death. And he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Not what I will, but what you will. And so here we see Jesus submitting to the will of the Father. Knowing now this crushing weight of, of distress, He's submitting to the will of the Father. Even in this, He sees it. So what's going on here? Surely men have faced their death with better composure than Christ is right here. Right? Like we know, martyrs. Like Stephen in Scripture. He's, he has peace. He's about to be stoned to death. And He has peace. He looks to God. And we, we know throughout history, men who have nobly and, and confidently faced their death with composure and courage that Jesus is not displaying here. So why is it that God in human form, fully God, truly God, and fully human, truly human, could be so crushed in this moment? 
It must be that Jesus is aware of something that we're not aware of, right? It must be he knows he's facing more than his own death. He is, he is caring as a rant. He's paying the ransom for the deaths of many. He doesn't just carry this feeling of, I'm going to be crushed. It's my death that's about to take place. He's carrying a weight of all who would profess to believe, of all who would follow him. Past, present, and future, all who have, all who will follow him. He's being crushed on their behalf. He's beginning to pay this ransom even here in the garden. He will suffer and die on behalf of the world and the restoration of all things. I even believe the purchasing of grace that happens on the cross is even the common grace that all men enjoy. Even those who won't be saved are still enjoying the grace of God that was purchased on the cross. And so this grace being bought is overwhelming him. Tim Keller says he turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath. The abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his Father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that. And he staggered. He staggered. He fell, crushed by it. And he called out to to God, his Father, Abba, remove this cup from me. The intensity and the intimacy that's taking place here truly cannot be comprehended by us. Namely because of this complex nature of Christ. So we're going to take a pause and have a theology lesson here because I think it's important. We call it the hypostatic union of Christ. This truly, fully divine, somehow, truly, fully human at the same time. And it's only because of that Christ could do what He's done on the cross as a, as a ransom for us. For, the, for us, when, and we, okay, so first of all, we look at God as one who can't be tempted. James 1.13, He cannot be tempted. Not just He can't sin, He can't even be tempted. He's God. But then we look at Christ who can be tempted, yet He never sins. So comparing us to Christ, something that's dangerous, but let's do it. For us, the power of evil is so strong in our human nature that we cannot help but sin. It's so strong from birth, in the womb, we cannot help but sin. All we do is sin because it's not worship to God. You cannot worship God unless you're in Christ. So everyone outside of Christ is not worshiping God. Everyone outside of Christ, all that they do is sin. And it's an impulse. It's in our nature. We cannot help it. Now, it's not true for the nature of Christ. Because he, He's God and He's born of a virgin, He's not inclined to sin. In fact, when faced with temptation, He's tempted, yet He never chooses sin. Because He, at no point in His life, stopped worshiping God. He's sinless. He always sees clearly, this is better than this. And He always clearly chooses good. It's in His very nature. That is why Christ is our only hope for freedom. So in Christ, we now have the freedom to choose good. We now see the goodness of Christ and we can choose nothing but that. But we struggle because our flesh is still warring against us. We're struggling and we choose sin over and over again. Yet now we clearly see Jesus better. Sober-mindedly, we would always choose Christ. So in the garden, for the first time, though He knew sorrow... 
He, he knows all about it. He's experienced the sin of the world. He's broken constantly to, to save those and heal those who are broken by sin. He is now being surrounded and engulfed and buried in grief. Because he's never known sin, but the wrath of God is now being directed at him. Right now, he's looking at sin in the face as it engulfs him. So some may say that this is a moment of weakness. How can it be? How can Christ be weak in this way? It doesn't make sense. If Jesus is God, how can this be? And I think the truth is it only makes sense because he's God. So the struggle we have with our weakness, the weakness we possess in our old flesh is we continue, the lust of the eyes continue, the pride of life continues. Jesus doesn't have that. So we're attacked. When we're attacked by sin, we're attacked at our point of weakness. We're attacked at the point of sin. And we struggle. We wage war against sin because it's trying to overtake us. We struggle to do what's right. But for Jesus, he's attacked at the point of his holiness. So because of his holy nature, his righteousness, his sole impulse, the sole impulse of his heart is to do what's right. Always. Ours is to do what's wrong. His is always to do what's right. All of his desires are always good and perfect. Every act and every thought he's ever experienced is worship to God. And while we struggle to do what's right, he is righteousness. So in this moment, his struggle is that righteousness is becoming sin. The perfectly holy one who has never known sin is becoming sin. This is impossible. This is as impossible as it is for us to know righteousness. But through Christ. And so bearing the weight of sin, he's being crushed. There's a grief that's so extreme for him. Not because he's tempted to sin necessarily, but because his holy nature is being attacked and it's killing him. So the anguish is so great that the father, that the father sends an angel to his aid. Luke 22:43 says, and, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven to strengthen him. And then on in verse 44, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Which is an actual medical condition that capillaries burst under the pressure of anxiety. So he's feeling this like he's never felt anything. The sorrow is great to the point of death. So did this show weakness in Jesus? Kind of. But I would say if he didn't respond like this, we'd have reason to question his holiness. Becoming sin, he's experiencing abandonment and darkness of, of cosmic proportions. He's, he is being forsaken. That's why it culminates to this point on the cross where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet still in the garden he cries Abba, and this term is, is intimately familiar. It's, it is knowing God in a vulnerable state. It's an expression of trust and, and vulnerability and affection. And everything is being repulsed by sin, yet he knows he can go to, Father, go to the Father. He feels he's becoming sin, yet he knows he can still cry out, Abba. 
If there's any other way, let it be done, is what he's saying. Remove this cup, is what he's requesting. Yet, only your will. Father, only your will. And that needs to be the position of our hearts in every moment of grief. In verse 37, And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon. It's interesting, Jesus calls Peter, Simon, his old name, because he's acting like his old self. He's not being the rock that Christ declared him to be. Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so here we find ourselves in the story. We are the weak ones, exhausted by life. Daylight savings, thrown off. We are so fragile in every, in every scenario, but especially when things get difficult. And so Jesus is telling them time and again, pray. You cannot do this. You're not strong enough. Pray. Stop falling asleep. Pray. They're, they're exhausted by many things. First of all, we just learned they stayed up all night having this giant Passover meal. And midnight comes and they exit the house and they're going to their camp and they're tired. It's understandable. But Jesus commands them, sit here and pray, watch and pray, and they fail. And, and it's noteworthy here, he calls Peter, James, and John to come with him, to come take a closer look, to come further into the garden. And they're invited to watch, to watch him, even from a distance, and they're commanded to pray. This is the so-called inner circle we've talked about before. They, they're privileged to some special time with Jesus. They see some things not everyone gets to experience and see. And so Jesus calls them in. But it's unique here because Peter, in, in verse 31 that we didn't read, he's, he's just boasted in his loyalty. He's just said, I'm not denying you. I never would do that. Confident in himself to never fail. And, and James and John, we see on cult, a couple of occasions, are arguing about who's the greatest. Can we be the greatest? I mean, maybe you can let us sit next to you. And it's just happened again at, at the Passover meal. And so he asked Peter, James, and John to follow. If you remember back in Mark, Mark 10, verse 37 39, or through 39, it says, And they said to him, this is James and John, Grant us to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I, that I drink? Or to be baptized with baptism that I, or which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. So with the same cadence of confidence that Peter has in verse 31 of this chapter, these guys are saying, yeah, we can do this. They don't know what they're talking about, but they can do it. They're confident they can do it. And so Jesus takes these three, and he draws them in. He says, follow me further in. He knows in these final hours they're going to fail him. But he says, with love, be humbled. He calls these three to watch him suffer under this weight. He knows they'll fail. Yet this wonderful lesson is woven into this story. Depend on me. Pray. Watch and pray. They're being lovingly humbled in this moment. 
It's not like for us, we look at the situation and maybe if you're in their sandals, you feel the shame of failure. Maybe reading the story, you read it and you're like, oh, they failed Jesus. Shame on them. I mean, if I'm there, that's what I'm feeling. In fact, in life, when I fail, that's what I feel. I'm failing God. I'm disappointing God. I'm letting Him down again. But don't feel that feeling. Don't think that thought. Jesus is not coming to them with accusations to condemn them. In fact, He comes to them with questions. He's, he's not accusing. Jesus doesn't want you to feel crushed in your inability. He wants you to see you can depend on Him and be able. He knows we're weak. He knows their sleep. But with that knowledge, He calls them closer to become, as He becomes sin on their behalf, He's going to let them watch it happen. He's drawing us in the same way as He has become sin on our behalf and conquered it. He's done everything necessary to overcome our weakness. We're unable. He's able. We're insufficient. He's sufficient. He knows. That's the point of the cross. We're not enough. Rest in that. Because He is enough. And He draws us to watch it. The founder and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Him. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising its shame. So don't feel the shame. There's a danger for the disciples. It's a lesser danger than what Christ is experiencing. It's a different danger, but it's still a danger. And He is trying to prepare them for it. He tells them, pray lest you fall into temptation. That's the temptation to lose faith. In whatever form unbelief comes, He knows it's coming. And for them, it's this laziness, this sloth, or even this apathy. In our complacency, our weakness grows. In our complacency, our faith shrinks. It's misdirected. We grow in unbelief because we're complacent. Don't be complacent. Watch and pray. Always be prepared. Yet we sleep. We got to sleep, right? Surely sleep is important. We need to sleep. You're encouraged to sleep. Don't forego sleeping. But don't miss what he's saying here. Spiritually, don't be asleep. Be vigilant. Be aware. Be watchful. Always be alert. The enemy is near. Always. And when tragedy strikes, you won't unravel if your faith is in Christ. If you're confident in Him, you can do this. But if you slip into this confidence and you got this, you're going to fall asleep. And Jesus knows our need to guard against this, so He commands us, as He commanded the disciples, watch and pray. Verse 39, And again He went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again He came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer Him. And He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Now Jesus, who, who is literally carrying the weight of the sins of the world, comes to find His closest followers, those who He's called in as support, as friends, asleep again and again. Now Luke wrote that as He came and found the disciples, He found them sleeping for sorrow. 
Mark leaves that part out, but we can see it's for sorrow. And I think that's important because it's not like they're ignorant to what's going on. They realize what Jesus is experiencing is difficult. They hear his words. They just can't fight the temptation to sleep. So they're not ignorant. It may even be an escape for them. Because of their sorrow, sleep seems the easiest thing to do right now. Despite the fact Christ has commanded them to pray. They're exhausted. And they're sorrowful. And so they sleep. Jesus, the great high priest, knew they were sleeping. That's why he comes to them three times. He addresses it with questions, not accusations. Then he gives them the command to pray. And even in his greatest point of distress, he pauses to encourage his disciples to do what's for their good and pray. So let us also be encouraged to pray even when our flesh is weak. Let us have prayer that is dependent on the power of Christ. Dependent on God, not ourselves. Confident in Christ, not ourselves. I would go as far as to say that if you're not praying regularly with a practice that is surrender to God, surrendering more and more to God, dependent on the gospel at work in you and through you, if you're not doing that regularly, it's sinful. If you aren't praying in this way, you're willfully disobeying the commands of Scripture. If you aren't praying in this way, you're implicitly saying, I've got this. And I don't need you. And you're asleep spiritually. We must be aware that in spite of our redeemed souls, our sinful flesh is powerful. And it takes us to places that we don't desire to go when we sleep. So three times Christ returns to the disciples to wake them. And three times he beseeches his father. Take this from me if it's your will. Jesus knew that Judas was near and they needed to be up and on their feet, ready to stand before their accuser. So he says, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So here we have the sense of resolve. It is enough. This is actually a disputed translation Um, It's just one word in Greek. It is enough. It it is over. It is settled. We're done here. Is he talking about, he's done praying. Is he talking about, we don't have any more time. We've got to get up and get going. What exactly is he saying? But there's this, there's something about it. This phrasing that's outside of scripture. This Greek, this Greek word used outside of scripture often means a, a, a finishing of a case, a finishing of an investigation, a finishing of whatever. So, there's just something parallel to John 19.30 when Christ cries out, it is finished. There's this, this weight to it. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of men, uh, sinners. This, this spiritual crucifixion that's taking place in the garden is finished. His will is now aligned with the will of God. His surrender to the plan is complete. Even though the disciples failed... Christ has completed everything necessary. So now let's consider the, the answer to his request. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So we've got to know this is talking about what we just experienced. So if you've ever thought about the garden, you saw Jesus there praying. 
like timidly, really quietly, God, if you could take this from me. Know that instead it was these loud cries and tears. So the disciples, however far off they were, certainly could hear him crying out to their Father in heaven. To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So what is the answer to this prayer? Yes, it's the will of God that Christ be crushed by the sins of all who would be saved. And it's through him drinking this cup of wrath that we enjoy eternal salvation. It's because of his obedience that we are enabled to obey. With supplication and loud cries and tears, our Savior on our behalf, the righteous one became sin. He faced our accusers while we slept, while we ran away, while we denied him. And with confidence and perfect composure, he proclaimed it to be enough. And he took on death, conquering all that we would be unable to conquer. And eternity in hell would never pay it. And He is our eternal source of salvation because of it. And we can be confident not in ourselves, but in Him because of it. Hebrews 4.15 and Isaiah 53.3-4 connect on this point. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus, our high priest, is able to sympathize with our weakness. Don't just rush past this thought. I mean, it's inviting us to pause and to ponder this. Consider this. Jesus, our high priest, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness. So do you feel weak? Yes. Is there something in you, some fear in you, some insecurity in you rising up because you know you can't do it? Yes. Is temptation coming at you from every direction every day of the week? Yes. Do you want to depend on yourself and be confident in yourself because you think you've got it? Yes. But Christ sympathizes with all of it. Every amount of suffering in all of it. And not only does He sympathize, but He has endured every amount of suffering that we would be unable to endure. And so it's not with an obligation to Him because He's done this for us and now we had to do this for Him. It's with a, a grateful heart because of His grace that we weren't crushed in this way. It's with a grateful heart that we follow and obey. Jesus knew He would suffer hell on the cross. Only was going to take the hell of Gethsemane to get there. And so He endured on our behalf the surrender that's necessary. Leads us and guides us and displays for us the surrender that's necessary for us. 
To not just say, not my will, but yours be done. But to say, I know my will is ridiculous. I know my will is all about me. I know my every inclination is to to make it about me. To be centered around me. To exalt myself. So I surrender it to you. With the knowledge that that process is going to be difficult. That that sanctification is going to be painful. Not denying it. Don't just act like you don't care about what you want. Because you do. Every one of us does. But killing it because you know Jesus is better. In Christ, you realize He's better. You desire Him more than you desire Him. Sin because He's better. If Jesus had not been obedient unto death, He would have been swallowed by death. If He had not said, Your will, not my will then forever there would be no hope. There would be no resurrection. There would be no salvation. There would be no future filled with glory and glorified bodies with Christ on the new earth. None of that would exist if not for this moment in the garden when Christ surrendered Himself to the will of the Father. And the same is true for us. There's no hope unless we surrender ourselves fully and completely and with every moment of every day denying the flesh, killing the flesh, Picking up our cross and following Jesus. With all that we have, we surrender. There's still something more. You surrender it. With every word, with every thought, with every action, take it captive and kill it. Because it's not about Christ, it's about you. And it doesn't belong. Surrender. You're never done with this. For the rest of your lives, you will be surrendering more and more of you. Give it to Him. It's your only hope. You cannot do it. Christ has done it. You are unable. Christ is able. So let us consider the size of our sin that would crush our Savior in the garden and on the cross. And know that far more it would crush us. But it doesn't. Because the tomb is empty. And He has conquered sin and death. And in surrender to Him like the saints who have gone before us. Faith in Christ. And the saints that will come after faith in Christ. Hebrews 12, 1-4 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggles against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Church, if you think you've done all you can to fight sin, you haven't. If you think you've done all you can to surrender yourself to Christ, you haven't. But you can do it by resting in in faith, by resting in what He's done, by thinking on Him, by fixing your eyes on Christ, because He's done it all. Surrender. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for the Gospel, for the ways You are at work in us, and the ways You are at work through us to bring Yourself glory and 
and to bring us goodness. So let us surrender all of ourselves to you, knowing in you we find everything we need. And these moments when we're tempted to be confident in our flesh, confident in ourselves to follow, let us see clearly we are weak in our flesh. But you have made us strong in spirit. And as we depend on you, Father, I thank you for this moment that we can stop and see you sympathize with every moment of weakness, with every temptation we face. You have overcome it. And we place our confidence in you. As we sing songs to worship you, as we share in communion, let us draw near to the truth. Let us fix our eyes on Christ and let us put our hope and faith in the only hope we have. The, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the hope that is Christ. Let us be sure in it. In Jesus' name, amen.